Jaws of the Mad. This is Now Playing's Die Hard Retrospective Series. Welcome to the party, pal! Hosted by Arnie. It's always more of a Star Wars guy. Stuart. He didn't bring me along for my charming personality. And Jacob. Flying in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. Pain in the ass. It's a good day to die hard. So each week, we will be watching and reviewing a new die hard film, ending with a weekend of release review of the new movie. Another basement, another elevator. Nothing the same shit happened to the same guy twice. This review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Today we're discussing Live Free or Die Hard, starring Bruce Willis, Justin Long, Timothy Oliphant, Maggie Q, Kevin Smith, and directed by Len Wiseman. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, who is starting the downloads. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob, Living Free or Podcasting. They're mutually exclusive. You cannot be a podcaster for Now Playing and Live Free. It takes up all your time. (laughs) I don't like this title. If we're discussing this title, I had to look up that it was this New Jersey state motto. I don't like this whole, we're not going to do numbers, we're going to do cutesy titles. It's not even D anymore. It's not even filed under Die Hard anymore. You have to put it in the L section should you choose to put it in your video library. I find that obnoxious. Fortunately, I bought the Die Hard box set for Blu-ray so I could have the first three movies, and it's all in (laughs) one case, so it just goes under D. Well, Stuart, maybe you want to move to Hungary or one of those little European countries that always makes us have to review these TV films because internationally, this was called Die Hard 4.0. Ah, I like it better. Sorry. It's simple to the point and I know what I'm getting. It makes sense given that this is all about hacking. Software has the point releases. I like that. And then you could call the unrated DVD cut 4.1. It works. Well, this was a 4th of July movie, though. So, you know, live free or die hard. Uh, it went with the weekend it came out. Ah, uh, well, I didn't see it in theaters. We're in newbie territory for me. Again, I only saw the first two movies. And a long time ago, I knew when this came out, I was aware of it. But really, I didn't have any expectation of it being good. I just couldn't imagine at this point, if Bruce Willis was going back to the well 12 years after the last one, that it was for art. It was going to be a cash grab, right? I approached it with the most cynical eye here. But you're getting my unbiased first response to it. My big question coming to this is, is this movie the big pariah I thought it was when I saw this in theaters five years ago? Because I was so excited for another Die Hard film, I was surprised that Bruce Willis did come back because he wasn't in a situation where he needed career recovery. He was a staple. He could work on pretty much whatever he wanted. He had a number of movies coming out every year. But I was so excited for this. Went opening weekend. A little nervous about that PG-13 rating. We've talked before about how when R-rated franchises cut back their ratings to try to bolster the box office. It's not that I need people saying fuck every five seconds and gore splattering the screen. But if you're starting with that compromise, how many other compromises are being made in order to maximize? blandness and commercial viability. It feels like an auteur isn't behind the wheel, but I went in with an open mind to theaters. I walked out with that mind slammed shut. 
I was never going to return to this movie. And many times over the years of now playing, when we had a lull, Brock or somebody would say, hey, let's do Die Hard. I'm like, I am not ending with four. No. But I never thought there'd be a fifth. I also saw this opening weekend, really excited. I remember seeing the trailers, and I'm like, that looks like a fun movie. And not surprisingly, or maybe surprisingly, Fox said that the Live Free or Die Hard trailer was their best-tested trailer ever, better than Independence Day. That trailer really got the excitement going. I remember seeing that, and it looked like a different kind of Die Hard film. I'll start it right there. It was wider. We've talked about the confined spaces and that. It looked like, you know, maybe more in the realm of three, where it was a big city sprawl, but this looked like even bigger action. I was excited. I went into that theater 4th of July weekend, and for a summer blockbuster film, I enjoyed myself. I was smiling when I came out, and I know the rap that this film gets. I think I know what Arnie's going to say as we go through this, unless he's had a change of heart. It was a different experience watching it this time, though, as I think you've called it, Arnie, where we really sit down and pay attention to what's going on. So, Jacob, have you seen it since theaters? Is this your first time going back? I've seen it once or twice since theaters. Again, though, with a different mindset than sitting down to critically analyze it. Right. But when this came out on video, I will say my curiosity was piqued about going back. Because they came out with the unrated or really what would have probably been an R-rated cut on DVD. I always hold out hope that if the theatrical PG-13 one really sucks, maybe the unrated version is better. I actually watched both for this review to relive my theatrical experience and then to watch the unrated one to see if it is better. I was wondering which one you guys watched. I had the unrated DVD version, so if there was any decisions about neutering the action or the violence of the film, I'm unaware of it. Seeing this movie, I definitely didn't feel like it needed more blood or action or that it was compromised in any way. It felt like an R-rated movie. In that sense, it felt just like the other three. And I watched both cuts. This is my first time seeing the uncut version, though. When I've watched in the past, it's when it's played on TV, so even more edited than the PG-13 version. So this is the first time I've sat down and watched each cut side by side. Yeah, it was hard to get the uncut version. I had to actually pick up a DVD since in the Blu-ray set they decided to just give me the PG-13 version. Thanks, Fox. Well, that way you could rebuy the box set with five in there and they'll put both versions. Thanks, Fox. Speaking of Fox, we've talked about 20th Century Fox a lot in our various podcasts, but... I kind of want to call them out for especially this period of filmmaking. I mean, let's look at the films from this period of Foxes that we've reviewed. We've done a couple Alien vs. Predator reviews. There's a couple Fantastic Four reviews. Hell, I've recommended some of these films, but I never liked it. Case in point, X-Men Origins Wolverine. This feels like a period where... The franchise films were being looked at primarily as Coca-Cola. And it didn't matter who was making them. It didn't matter what the script was. You put it in the hands of somebody who can work with some special effects. You get it out on time under budget. And it will make money because of the title attached to it. And... I gotta say, I don't think that's the case. I think that history has proven there are good genre films and shitty genre films. I'm happy to say I think Fox has turned it around looking at X-Men First Class, looking at what they're doing with the next X-Men movie, and I'm hopeful, seeing that Die Hard 5 is R-rated, that they've also found the path to salvation with this. They brought Ridley Scott back and let him do what he wanted with Prometheus. But this is coming at a point where I think anything they touched during this period was a pariah. 
Well, it's not like they could get John McTiernan back. I think he was in jail, wasn't he? Did he do tax evasion? There was that whole scandal that was in Hollywood about the wiretap. But if he wasn't actually physically incarcerated, he was busy with other matters. And I also think there was a move to get something young and fresh here. Even though McTiernan has delivered what I would argue is the two best Die Hard movies, they probably didn't necessarily want to go after that same vibe. Twelve years have passed. They want somebody new to step in the chair and bring their take on the material. And so we wind up with Lynn Wiseman. So they didn't want a diehard film, they wanted a vampire film? I hear that actually it was Bruce Willis's daughter, that he credits her with being a fan of the Underworld and saying, this is the guy you should get. I don't know Underworld films, to me they look like prequels to Twilight, but it definitely has a big following. It's been a while since I've seen the first Underworld film, it's the only one I've seen. It was an action film, that's pretty much all that sticks in my mind, it was a competent action film. I also saw Underworld once in theaters. I almost walked out, I'll be honest. And when people tell me they're fans of the franchise, I just kind of cock my head, look at them like they're speaking a foreign language and walk away. I think Willis, though, did have a heavy hand in the production of this film, especially the script. That's the impression I got as I was listening. He actually does the commentary for this film. He hasn't done it for any of the other ones. He actually did the commentary with the director here, and he had a lot of input in the script. And when you say his daughter wanted this director, I don't doubt that. Bruce had been shepherding this for a while. I do think that he was doing it for mainly financial reasons, but I think anytime a star's identity is tied up with a part, they care about how it turns out. I'd look at Sigourney Weaver and how she shepherded those alien films. She was deeply involved as an executive producer throughout that. I think Bruce wanted to make the best Die Hard 4 that he could, but he definitely was coming back to this as his meal ticket. And this evolved throughout the years. I had not seen Live Free or Die Hard before, but I have seen Tears of the Sun, and they were this close to making that 2003 bomb set in a African jungle as Die Hard 4. I don't know. Have you guys seen that film? No. No. Oh, yeah. The whole idea was John McClane in a literal jungle this time. They were going to put him in Africa. And then wisely, I think Bruce came to his senses and realized that he was making a film much more political and dramatic that it just wouldn't play right with all he was trying to take on with African genocide. It would have been a terrible, terrible Die Hard film. It's not a particularly good movie, even as it is. But that was going to be Die Hard 4. And then I think 9-11 happened and things changed and they realized they needed to reevaluate where the terrorist threat was coming from. Well, this is an adapted work, just like with one and two, you did those on Books and Nachos. I don't think there's going to be a Books and Nachos for this episode, though. It's based on a Wired article. A Farewell to Arms by John Carlin actually gets a based on in the credits here. And it's basically just saying, hey, the Cold War's over. There's a new form of warfare going on, and it's all digital. It's the information wars. He calls it I-War. It's going to be done over the Internet, and it's something our government is not prepared for. Yeah, and I wonder, thinking about how big the scope is of this movie, if it wouldn't be better served in its original form, where you didn't have to shoehorn in a senior detective and a cyber kid. I don't know, I guess we can discuss that after we discuss the plot. It's been many years since the last Die Hard, both in our world and in John McClane's. He's now working as a detective on the NYPD, unhappily divorced, estranged from his children. McClane is depressed, morose, and stalking his daughter, trying to get her attention, but she's using her mother's maiden name, Gennaro. But when the NSA finds itself under a cyber attack, they use local police to round up all hackers who could have been involved, and McClane is called to pick up hacker Matt Farrell and drive him from New York City to Washington, D.C. 
but a group of cyber terrorists led by former Department of Defense hacker Thomas Gabriel have laced Matt's apartment with explosives. Under the guise of a job application, Matt and several other hackers in the U.S. were hired to write pieces of code Gabriel needed to launch a massive attack. With the code delivered, Gabriel's men have been eliminating the hackers. And when Gabriel's gunmen move in for the kill, they meet more resistance than expected from John McClane, and the fight is on. Gabriel's plan is to hold the country hostage through a cyber attack, quote, fire sale, unquote, taking control of the traffic grid and the power plants, all as a diversion while Gabriel hacks the backup facility used by all the banks in case of cyber attack. McLean and Matt are attacked several times by Gabriel's men, so they go on the offensive, investigating Gabriel and tracking him to his plan. Gabriel kidnaps John's daughter Lucy, but it's a diehard film, so lots of shit blows up. John McClane lives through even more than ever before, including riding an airborne F-35 jet and kills Gabriel seconds before he steals the money. Matt mans up, rescuing Lucy from a henchman for a possible future romance as credits roll. I didn't go explosion by explosion through the plot. I'm sure we'll talk about all the big bangs as we go through it. Starting right here with the 20th Century Fox logo, sometimes they like to tie the plot in with their little insignia, and the power goes out. I didn't know what this plot was about, but instantly I could tell from the credits in this opening, it was all going to be on laptops. And can I just say already, if my defenses weren't already up, I was thinking about Firewall. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that movie. Oh, yes. Harrison Ford, cyber curmudgeon, has to fight a bunch of hackers. I just hate seeing old 80s action stars trying to pretend like they know anything about computers and trying to be hipped up for this generation. I think this is a terrible idea of trying to make John McClane in a cyber world. I don't want to see this. I'd rather stick him in that jungle than have him putting on virtual reality or whatever they're going to do with him. I'm terrified in this opening scroll when I see all these computer screens and this nefarious agency targeting all these kid hackers. I understand where your fear comes. Are you saying having seen the movie that you still feel that way or are you just saying you're afraid that you're going to be watching John McClane strap on some VR gear? That's exactly it. All my fears don't come to light so I am not saying that they have made the worst possible adaptation of this only that I do not like this direction at all. I wish they were heading 180 degrees to somewhere else. It's embarrassing to watch old guys try and be hip. You know, that's just really what it comes down to. It's painful for me to think that Bruce Willis is going to have to make old jokes about himself while he proves that analog action heroes are better for a digital age. One of the things that I dislike, probably for me the biggest fault for this film, is the whole hacker thing. Because how is hacking done on computer screens? Here's two hours of people typing up on screens. And like, I had this debate with this guy at work the other day. He's like, oh, there's no more great science fiction movies. And I'm like, well, the problem is all the great science fiction now is about the digital age. That just makes for really boring cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, I go back, what was that Sandra Bullock movie where she was a hacker? and The Net. The Net. I think of all the cheesy icons, like all those screens, all those. I'm not even a computer person, and Arnie, you as a computer person, perhaps you're pulling your hair out. I'm just watching this, and yes, they're trying to glam it up and make it cinematic, but I always know when I'm going into a film like this, they're just going to cheese up the hacking and the computers to try to make it more watchable. The worst offender of that has to be Hugh Jackman's Swordfish, period. But I can go with hacker movies. I like hackers. 
There are more bad ones than good ones, but I can go with this. I also like the person who they brought in, because we don't see John McClane as a programmer. We don't see John McClane for a while in this film. We start off on his sidekick, Justin Long, as Matt Farrell, who is the hacker, I think two things. First of all, it's a much better pairing as far as skill sets than Sam Jackson and John McClane. Because Sam Jackson never brought a whole lot to the party. Here we have somebody who is not big, who is not tough, but who is smart and computer savvy. So you have two people who complement each other's skills. Actually, this is my least favorite part of the whole movie. It's painful to me that they had to do this. I recognize Bruce Willis is old. Action movies are for young kids. We want to see young stars in this. But I hate the fact that the sidekick this time is a bratty know-it-all kid who can use an on-star decoy when Bruce Willis would rather hotwire a car. I hate the fact that it's going to be this battle between new technology and old police skills. I'm going to split the difference here. This isn't going to live up to Sam Jackson's performance, Justin Long here, the voice of Alvin the Chipmunk in those films. (laughs) He's not going to live up, but for this story, I'm glad we're not watching Bruce Willis figuring out how to hack when he had so many problems with the fax machine in Die Hard 2. At least they're keeping that kind of contentious relationship, whether it was with his wife in the first one or, you know, the white-black thing in part three. They're keeping with that theme here. It's going to be old and young, and I can appreciate that. Yeah, and I'm not knocking Justin Long for this. I really don't even know who this actor is. I think he was hired, what, because he was a computer salesman, right? Well, he did do some Apple ads, but this, I think, is the pinnacle of his movie career. He was an up-and-comer. He was dating Drew Barrymore. He'd had a number of movies where he was both supporting and starring, do pretty well. I'd seen him in Idiocracy. There was Drag Me to Hell. There was Waiting dodgeball he'd been in a large number of films he started off on a tv show i really liked ed and it felt like he was poised to break out as the next big comedy star perhaps the next ryan reynolds he's an affable guy who i like watching in films after this though he kind of seemed to go on the decline he broke up with drew barrymore and his movie career just never really well he did chipwrecked Uh, He's young. I'm sure he'll wind up in something, maybe on TV. I'm not worried about him, but I am worried as we set up for this. That's all I'm really saying here, and I don't like the pairing. It's not that I don't like the actor. I think Justin Long is fine. I don't like this scenario. I also don't understand what's happening. All of these hackers that we're going to see in the opening montage here are now being terminated because they've participated in supplying code for programs that are going to be used for things they don't even know about. Their function is done. They're a liability that they're out there. So it's been determined by the evil forces that be that they get whacked in this really bizarre fashion. Somebody's put C4 bombs in their laptops, and when they hit delete, their whole house explodes. I like to think it's Control-Alt-Delete, and we just don't see them hit Control-Alt, because you hit delete a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering, did the terrorists in this film, did they supply these laptops? Because, like, how did they sneak in and put a thing of C4 on there if not? Why not just shoot? them yeah walk in with a silencer and just yeah (laughs) knock on the door they open it up and shoot them 
it's really painful, this whole scenario. Again, arms folded, prepared for a terrible, terrible film when I see these early scenes. I'll go ahead and preview it. The movie gets much better, but I'm telling you, it's not warming my heart as we start. I'll split the difference. I don't think it gets better, but I think that this is terrible. I think this is ridiculous. Here's the thing that I like about the Die Hard films, is that I feel the first two, while incredible, always had a tether, a tenuous, tenuous tether to the real world. It's highly unlikely that John McClane would survive the things he did. But much like the Nolan, quote, realistic, unquote, Batman films, I could go with it. And even Die Hard with a Vengeance, I could go with it with the single exception of that fall onto that boat. Here, that tether is gone. You have bad guys who are computer hackers who not only are really good computer hackers, but have an entire squad of hitmen at their fingertips that they send out across the country. They only use American hackers? There's nobody international who's going to help them write that code? I'm sorry. If you're writing code and you're crowdsourcing it, you get some people from China, you get some people from Indonesia, you get some people from Russia, and you get some people from the States. But no, they're all U.S. hackers. Okay, I'll go with that. You're going to kill them all, and you're going to do so in the most noisy, attention-getting way possible. And when you miss one, you send a fucking chopper? Yeah, it's painful. And again, it's because they had to frame this around John McClane. What we're going to learn is because these people are being targeted, they need to bring everyone else in for questioning and for witness protection. And thus, we have Justin Long getting into the custody of John McClane. And that's the odd couple pairing that they've cooked up here. It's an incredibly hard scenario to buy. And I don't even want to shell out money for it. But this is what I've been given with Die Hard 4. And so I'm watching with arms folded. Here's the thing. I could kind of go with the C4 because the whole thing here is diversion. We've seen three diehard films. We always know it's about diversion, why they go and do whatever their real heist is. So it makes sense. Like, let's have these big explosions. The police will find out they're hackers. The FBI will use all their sources to go after these hackers and get them. What doesn't make sense is having the crew to go in and shoot them if the bomb doesn't go off. Because if you're just going to use them as a diversion, why do you need your people there to really kill them? You already know what your plan is. You already know how to pull it off. What is matter if they capture Justin Long. I could spend the next hour poking holes in this. If you have people sitting outside, why do you need them to hit delete? Why not trigger it by remote? If you're a hacker, why not trigger it by virus or cell phone? It's just, let's move on from this. I can't talk about this. I know. We don't need to have this conversation. We all recognize the difficulty by which they've come to this pairing, and we must accept it in order to go through and have a diehard film. But it's gross. It's hard to swallow. It's junk. And I also hate how they bring John McClane in. What does he have to do? He has to be a cab driver from New York City to Washington fucking D.C.? Why would they get NYPD to pick someone up in Jersey? Because this is a script that didn't have John McClane and they have to figure out a way to get him in quickly and to keep him into this plot. And I don't have much more to say about it except that I really do think it is quite a strain to stick John McClane diehard into this scenario they've cooked up here. There's so many ways you could do it, but this one is one of the worst setups for any movie, not just a diehard film. 
Well, Arnie, you talked about Fox and this era of Fox. It really feels like a lot of times they were just making up the script as they went along. They didn't even know if they were shooting a PG-13 or an R-rated film going into this. They just said, well, we'll shoot scenes with a lot of squibs and with not so many squibs, depending on how it gets rated. And there's scenes throughout this film where they set something up and it doesn't pay off because, oh, we just changed the script. I know that they said on the commentary they didn't know if it was R or PG-13, but I also know that they lied because I remember this coming out and Justin Long was making comments in interviews about how he's making the neutered diehard film. He knew in filming it was PG-13. They just filmed the R-rated things because they knew there would also be a DVD. But hey, cheer up. The next one next week is an R-rated, so maybe they've learned something here. Maybe they realize that PG-13 is not the way to go with this. But this does definitely feel like they're catering for an audience of 13-year-olds. Certainly that mentality. But you know what? I would get past this. I would get past this setup. I thought McLean was in New York. I thought Matt Farrell was in New York. So that's how I was figuring McLean went in. I guess I was ignoring in two watchings that he was in Jersey. Yeah, that's why they do the Jersey model tagline, live free or die hard. Okay, that makes a little bit of sense for the title. But I'm fine getting past all of this. We're talking about the first 15 minutes of the film. I'll take it. Right. We get the big action scene in the apartment and the people who we know are across the hall aren't looking out going what are these explosions and bullets okay i'll go with it all i will take all this shit they're shoveling me until the ninja werewolf shows up and starts scaling the walls Come on, didn't this come out around the same time as uh, Punisher War Journal and Daniel Craig James Bond when free running and, and all that was in vogue in films all of a sudden? Yeah, parkour. I love it. I always enjoy seeing it. But this is the diehard, even more than the last one, that feels most untethered with physics and gravity and, yeah, that reality-based action that they had been going for. Up to this point, that's been thrown away, wadded up, put it in the trash, and shot with a rocket launcher. They're done with that. We are now in the Matrix, and everyone can fly and be on wires and go all over the place. We are not in the Matrix. We're in the underworld. They have hired a director who can make one movie. And you know what? Here's the absolute proof of this. The other day, I was watching for the first time the remake of Total Recall. And I'm watching this. I didn't know who directed it. And I'm like, this feels like a Resident Evil underworld type action thing going on. It was the same fucking guy. He can make one kind of action. And that's why this parkour guy and this Maggie Q, they are as resilient and as agile as the vampires and the lichens from Underworld. That is the one style of action this man can do. And I imagine that I would go with all of this fakey CGI ugly shit if it was starring Mr. Fantastic or Wolverine. But this is John McClane, and this is not a diehard film. We have asked in Die Hards 2 and 3, what makes a diehard film? I don't know, but it isn't here. You know what, Artie? It's weird. I feel like I'm listening to myself during some of those Marvel films where I felt like with some of the characters, I was so much into a purist interpretation of them, I couldn't go with certain films and the changes they made. And here, it's weird, because I'm the fan. Now maybe this is my Hulk TV show. This is a different film. I could totally admit that. This is a different Die Hard. To me, though, it feels like the 21st century Die Hard. It feels like other action films I would have been watching at the time. And you know what? Now we're putting Bruce Willis in there. We've seen him shoved into other movies where they just changed the name to Die Hard and those worked. Once the action starts here, I'm willing to go with it. I recognize it is very different, but it's a different aesthetic. Yes, it's this 21st century aesthetic where there's a lot more CGI. Everyone's become superheroes. But at this point, this is the film I realize I'm getting and I'm going to go 
go with it. I'll go one step further. I think the action in this is pretty good. I think that the stunt work is fantastic. I'm so impressed with the way that some of this works. You say that it's all fakey, but some of it's not fake. Some of this is genuine guys on wires stunt work. And you can tell that. It has a tactile feel to this. Yes, some of this is rear projection and driving in the car, and I just don't buy some of it. But I will say that if you like Michael Bay kind of action, this is on par with any of that stuff that I've seen. And I think that the best thing you can say about Live Free or Die Hard is that when the action moments are happening, they're pretty good. I like Michael Bay stuff, but I guess I needed to know when this movie started projecting that I was watching a Transformers movie. But the opening credits said Die Hard, and that is where I have this big problem. And I tried on my second watching of this film for this review to see if I could just pretend this guy's name was John McCain instead of John McClane, and it's not a Die Hard film. (laughs) That's a very different movie (laughs) with John McCain in it. He was uh, on television a lot at the time. Teaming up with Sarah Palin, the hacker. (laughs) Would be a very different film, no doubt. I tried to pretend if this wasn't a diehard film, could I go with it? And I just need a reason to understand why things aren't tethered in reality. I need there to be mutants or vampires or robots from outer space. All of them would fit into this world that Wiseman creates here. But give me this. If you could cut away the plot and the characters and your feelings about the other movies, some of this action is on par with anything Michael Bay has done. I have only seen Michael Bay's work in the Transformers, but there are things in here that are as good or even better that are done in this movie. The action kicks ass. Perhaps it's because in God Help Me, the good Michael Bay films, I have a relationship with the characters and I enjoy their humor and their personalities and I want to see them succeed, including the Bruce Willis Michael Bay film Armageddon. And here, I'm not liking this new John McClane. I'm not liking the world he's inhabiting. And so I'm not able to get into the action. And I'm going to go one step further and say Wiseman doesn't know how to use a camera because several times in the action scenes, I got confused what I was looking at. There are two specifically. There's one where they go into a tunnel and cars are coming at them head on and we are seeing things we're in the car with john mcclane and we're looking out the windshield and the next thing you see is a car coming at me and i'm like is there another car coming down the other way no they just move the camera around and when they're in the elevator shaft and the terminatrix there is climbing up with her gun she was hit by a SUV going 50 miles an hour rammed through a cement wall into an elevator shaft She's not groggy. She's still ready to ninja kick. And this guy falls down the elevator shaft. The way it shot, I thought he was floating away. I thought he was going up. I was really confused by the angles. Some of them are kinetic. Some of them are exciting. But some of them are downright confusing and make me wonder what the fuck I'm seeing. I'll give you this, Arnie. For example, in the opening shootout, which it's an exciting shootout in Justin Long's apartment. Except here's my problem. First Die Hard film, 50-story building, whatever that was, I felt like each floor had a personality. I understood the geography of that building. Here we are in, like, this one-bedroom apartment, and I feel lost. They go out in the hall. They go back into the apartment. I don't know if that's the same apartment they just came out of or they ran into someone else's. It's not until I see some superhero toys on the wall because that was one of Justin Long's thing. He collected superheroes. I'm like, okay, the action I'm excited by. But, yes, there's that not that sense of geography. There's not that sense of let's really 
think out how this is going to work in some of these scenes. Well, I'm not the action movie guy. It's not my forte. And Arnie, some of the things you cited actually made me cringe and made me want to retract some of my compliments because, yeah, there are some terrible fake moments. That scene where they're in the underpass and the cars are flipping over and they duck down and it crashes atop of them, but two other cars just drove up in time. Oi. Some of that is bad. <laughs> I love that scene. Oh, God. No, they've had it in the trailer. That's the only thing I remember from the trailer. That one's bad. I'm talking about the real good stunt stuff. Guys falling out of helicopters and stuff. And I actually liked all the work in the elevator shaft. You have to do an elevator shaft. What they'd said was, all right, we're no longer confined by a space at all. The location is the entire East Coast, mostly set around D.C. and Maryland. But it's not about confinement and containment at all. What we're going to do is recreate famous moments from the other ones and Brinkham them around here. You have to do an elevator shaft scene. And I would say this was a good progression of the original explosion in an elevator shaft from Die Hard 1 when we have that chick fight in the elevator shaft. See, I'm so torn with this film. On one hand, I agree with you, Stuart. I liked this elevator action. But like Arnie, I hate how we get there. This is that one moment, Arnie, where I pull my hair out. When he rams into the Terminatrix, as you called her, pins her up against a wall, and she's still alive. Like, I remember my reaction in the theater. I'm like, huh? That's not possible. In the theater, the way the car hits her and she goes through the wall, and you see her torso laying on the hood, and I'm like, yeah, he cut her legs off. Exactly. And then I'm like, wait. She's still alive. Wait, she's still fighting. Wait, I want my money back. <laughs> and that's the thing. I'm like earlier on in that tunnel scene. I love that when the two cars block the one from hitting him. When John McClane, when he launches the car off the toll booth or whatever, and it hits the helicopter, and Justin Long's like, "Oh, you just shot a helicopter with a car." Like I love that. Like it, it's way over the top, but these are mechanical objects. So I guess I'm more willing to go with it. But yes, when you have a woman that is crushed with a car and she is still able to take on Jackie Chan with her style of martial arts, oh, that was going a bit far. And I don't know how. I feel about Bruce Willis beating the living shit out of a girl and ripping her hair out. I'm not sure how cool I am with that. I understand she can hold her own, and perhaps we should be in such a post-gender equality world that I should just care that he's fighting against a good ninja and he needs to fight his hardest. But when he leaves her there lying bloody on the floor, part of me's like, eee... What really turned me off, it wasn't the fight, is actually in the unrated cut, where after he kills her, he's like, fuck you, bitch. I'm like, whoa, you know, okay, you could punch her, she's trying to destroy America, but calling her a bitch, that's just like, I don't know, for whatever reason, I had that reaction where I'm like, that's just going a little too far to push boundaries. I was wondering how I was going to feel about it. I knew that they were setting this up, that she's clearly the toughest one of the whole underlings. We haven't really talked about the main bad yet, but she's the second in command, if you were. She's the lover of the main villain, and she's the one with all the skills, the ones that you really wouldn't want to face. And I think that they do a credible job of making it seem like a fair fight. Bruce is a little old, and he's never been a ninja. I also think that they just use the ethnicity thing to kind of give that a pass, and well, if she's vaguely Asian, then, you know, she probably can do all of these super cool kung fu moves. If it had been the director's wife, Kate Beckinsale, we might have had more of a problem with her getting punched. But I think there's just something we've come to accept in these kind of movies, that Asians have more magical dexterity in kung fu and can take this kind of thing. I mean, I think that it's just sort of in the framework of it. And as a fight, I appreciated it. My problems are not ever really with the fights or the action. My problems are how they get from fight A to fight B to fight C. It's this script that is really, I'm turning my nose up. 
I can't disagree, like I said, if John McClane could pop adamantium claws out of his hand and we understood we were in that world, I'd probably go with all of this a lot more. But the framework that is being set up, that we are in the real world, a post-9-11 world, you're going to try to introduce certain fears like anthrax being released in the Capitol building. I love that they have a very specific anthrax alarm, which sounds totally different than, say, the fire alarm (laughs) or the chlorine spill alarm. But we're supposed to be in this real world. We're supposed to have real fears of our systems being hacked, and yet we've got this. It just took me out. I can see what you're saying. There are things here I like. There is some camera work I like. In that same tunnel sequence, when McLean does the 180 in the car, and the camera keeps going, it's like it's in another car, and it's just kind of panning to follow. I like some of that stuff. And yeah, the ninja kicks are exciting. I am a little bit disheartened when she's on the ground bloody, and he's still holding her hair in his hand. That's what drove it home to me, that he was beating up a woman. But it is an exciting fight when there's not the CGI blue screen fakery, which is just very evident because Fox was very cheap. This was the, around the same time as Wolverine's Who Framed Roger Rabbit claws. So <laughs> it's just that even the best effects when they're CGI'd look it and when they're real. Yeah, there's some good fight choreography going on here. But I've never been a WWE kind of guy. I've always needed to relate to characters and story, and this movie isn't letting me do it. On the other hand, this is supposed to be tapping into our post-9-11 fears about cyber terrorism. It's based on a non-fiction article written pre-9-11, but nevertheless, it's based on an article on fact and how unprepared we were with dealing with threats to our computer systems, and that they've engineered this three-level attack, this fire sale, as they call it, should have a real world grab you in the gut fear. It's a joke. I mean, by having these be the action scenes and this be the character to get us through it, it renders all of that moot. I dare say nobody is in any kind of suspense watching this movie. You might be adrenalized by the action, but nobody is wondering or questioning how McLean's going to get out of this one. I guess for me, the whole plot, the whole scheme here, I get, yes, it's supposed to be tapping into those fears. It doesn't for me, again, going back to the whole computer hacking, how that's done, like, I don't know a lot about computer programming. I know enough to know that this is kind of crazy, this whole plot here. Yes, the idea that there is a fire sale where Timothy Oliphant, who is back on the show, he was the bad guy Mickey in Scream 2. That's about all I know him from. I'm a fan of his work on Justified. He's the star of that show. But his plan is to trigger a cyber attack, which starts a download of all banking systems to one central computer in a unguarded social security office. And so that way he can steal money, kill the credit ratings... I'm not quite sure even on two watchings. You know, you could go to a lot of black market websites today and just buy social security numbers. You don't have to run around in a semi with this elaborate computer hacking scheme to do this. It's pretty easy to do these days. No, he wasn't stealing social security numbers. What happened is, and I can actually say this is based in some truth, because I used to work for a large national bank. 
And when the terrorist attacks hit, my boss closed the blast doors of the data center in Minneapolis. He was trapped in that data center for 36 hours with a little slot that they could get some food through to protect their financial records in case the terrorist attack was going after the financial systems. They had one in Manhattan. The backup was in Minneapolis. So what they're saying here is in the case of a terrorist attack after 9-11, they were backing up all banking records to this mainframe that just happened to be in the social security building because it's government so that way if all the banks lost their computers they'd still know who had how much wealth and who had how much debt so that the economy could march on and i did get that that it wasn't social security numbers on multiple viewings what i don't get is how you take all that data and turn it into money i don't think that was the point i read the character in the opposite way typically we've seen people that presume to be political terrorists but their politics really are greed and here i actually think it reads better if you see the opposite. Yeah, he's going to get paid out or take something for himself here. But the way I read it, what we eventually find out about him is he designed these systems. He tried to sound the warning. Nobody would listen to him. So he's making a point. He's just like Justin Long and some of these other hackers that hack into a system to show you that it can be done. He wants to make a searing point by taking the money, whether he gets to spend it or not, that we are unprotected. He sees himself as a patriot by doing that. Uh, See, I took that all as cover because, well, that's what happens in diehard films. They're always there for the money. I get that his whole speech, his whole thing is, I try to warn him and I'm doing this to teach him a lesson. I'm the real patriot. Like, that does kind of speak to a lot of the conspiracy theories that really abound after 9-11. So I could see that reading, but I think at the end of the day, this is all about money. He kind of says that at the end, but I'm still not sure where he's getting the money. Is he just going to be the only person left in the country with money? That's why, to me, this is not a particular particularly good heist and why I didn't believe it. But it's hard to get a read on this villain. As much as I like Oliphant and enjoyed him on TV, and I also enjoyed him in that Crazies remake, I think he can be a likable presence. He just doesn't have an opportunity to be malevolent. And once they knock his girlfriend off, I don't feel like any of his other heavies are that intimidating. She was the only one that put up a good fight here. In the second half of the movie, he looks kind of impotent sitting there surrounded by a bunch of laptops. It's just what I always have a problem with these cyber thrillers. It's just not kinetic to watch people clicking on keyboards. This makes for an unscary villain. Hans Gruber wasn't that tough. Hans Gruber was surrounded by tough guys. So I would go with that. The fact that he's sequestered away from John McClane, the fact that this isn't a claustrophobic movie hurts it a little bit. But I'm fine with him as the mastermind in charge of these heavies. I will admit the heavies, they come, they go. When the werewolf ninja shows up again at the end, I'm like, oh, he's still alive. I have a hard time keeping track of who dies and what chopper at what explosion. But I like him as a villain. I think he's a terrible villain, though, because he orchestrates his own downfall. Unlike every other movie where they have a master plan and they would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for that damn cop. Here, Timothy Oliphant would have gotten away with it absolutely perfectly if he'd gone, well, shit, Matt got away. Let's focus on the main plan instead. Because what happens when Matt shows up at the NSA? They ignore him, and then they say, uh... McLean, we don't like you. We don't know who you are. So why don't you just take him down to the FBI and they'll deal with him. And if Oliphant 
hadn't done shit, if he hadn't sent that fucking chopper time and again, if he hadn't been obsessed with squashing this one cockroach, McLean would have escorted him to the FBI, they would have sat there in procedure, interviewing him for days, and Gabriel would have gotten away with it. Yeah, it's, again, the fact that they have to shoehorn in this young kid and Bruce Willis doesn't make any sense in this plot. They should not be focused on this. They have a three-level attack in which they're worried about, what, transportation, finances, and power. To me, what this one kid says out of all the other ones they've executed doesn't matter squat. It has no threat to what they're trying to accomplish at this stage in their game. It's a contrivance, and one that I am not willing to give it very readily. I would have even gone with it if his code was being used as the key code, and he was the one who would have the power to stop them from any computer terminal in the world if he were to get to one, because he knows the code. But they show up at Kevin Smith's basement, and Kevin Smith goes, yeah, that code you wrote's pretty useless. It's only being used to lock one door in one building in the entire country. The fact that his algorithm only unlocks a door really is ridiculous. Yeah, he is pointless. They needed to just let him go and focus on their plan and they would have gotten away with it. It's only because they keep going after him that they lose. I have to feel that there was real push and pull in the rewriting of how central to make Justin Long's character. Because here's the flip side of that. If you make it that he wrote an algorithm that is key to all of their plans, and thus he can undo all of their plans, you've essentially said that one of your good guys is a terrorist. And that makes him hard to like. That definitely makes him hard for you to want to root to get with John McClane's daughter later in the film. They have to make him still a sweet innocent and so they play this game of like he wrote a code but he didn't know what it was for and he was just kind of charmed by this hot woman's voice and oh it didn't really do anything bad anyway it wouldn't been like they needed his code but oh he has all the solutions to save the whole day it really was a lot of waffling because they did not want this sidekick to ever be perceived as a terrorist while we're on the kevin smith scene can i just say i also blame this movie for giving us cop out Oh, that's right. Willis was in that, wasn't he? Yep, and it was a result of his meeting Smith here. And I have to say, I was curious because, you know, Kevin Smith talks about every Hollywood celebrity he meets. I went down a very interesting rabbit hole Googling Kevin Smith and Bruce Willis relations. Way too much to go into on this podcast, but Google it. There's some interesting tales that Kevin Smith is spinning one way and Bruce Willis is like, I'm not even going to comment on it. He's beneath me. Hmm. Well, I did wonder why they had to use him for this scene. It's not like he's noted as a great actor, and usually Smith is known for his mouth. They kind of neuter him here. I mean, I guess it's kind of a joke that he is a hacker that lives in his mom's basement and collects Star Wars toys. That's a cliche, but that's a joke that they can have on the young kids here. I didn't understand how this was a Kevin Smith part. You know, I didn't mind Kevin Smith here. I'm not a huge fan of his body of work, especially as I get older. I thought he was amazing when I was like 19, and as I move away from that age, it doesn't quite hold up, but I go with him in this scene you know i recognize things here this is a pg-13 film a lot of kids like kevin smith let's throw him in here i don't think he's a detriment to the film he's got a couple of good lines you a big fan of the fet i like that line that was one i kept quoting afterward i feel he does an adequate job i don't think he takes away i don't think he adds anything here 
I agree completely. I think he's absolutely fine in this thankless role of mouthpiece that has to explain an incomprehensible plot. It's a thankless role. If I was him, I wouldn't have taken it other than I get to be in a diehard film. But it's the shittiest role of the movie. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's an information dump. We need to know more about Thomas Gabriel, so let's go to this warlock character, and he knows everything. We need a character that knows everything, and so he's going to sit here and spout off all about his history. And this is another part where I'm just going to call bullshit on this. That article that this movie was based on was pre-9-11. There was no money for these security systems, and a lot of our computer services are in jeopardy because of it. Post-9-11, that industry is booming. They're flush with cash. There is no concern at all about having money and security for this building that is unguarded for all of these systems. It's ridiculous. If this was an outdated article, this was an outdated concept in a post-9-11 world. And I just don't buy this premise that only this guy was screaming after 9-11 about cybersecurity. I just don't buy that. Yeah, but there's certain people that I think would relate with that. They want as much money, as much power thrown into the government to prevent more terrorist attacks. And whatever is done is seen as not being enough. I don't think it's that foreign of a concept. Maybe in reality it's foreign, but people's perception, people that are going to be going to the theater, there are people that would buy into that view. Well, sure. I mean, don't think about it too hard. And here is where I really cringe. You mentioned earlier about Willis's mouth regarding Mei Lin. And yeah, he starts to taunt Gabriel because he wants to get his goat. But calling her a dead Asian hooker bitch, I was like, eh, I'm uncomfortable with everyone here. <laughs> well, it is worse in the unrated cut. Having watched both, I have to say the biggest difference is apparently they ADR'd a lot of curse words in put it over not matching lips. Yes, you hear the word fuck a lot when there's no lips being shown on the screen. Meanwhile, they're still trying to work in elements of Die Hard here. It's always been a facet that someone Bruce Willis knows is in jeopardy. And so they don't want to bring Bonnie Bedelia back. This is for the kids. Let's get his hot daughter, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. We've seen her before. Several times. Sometimes we didn't even know we were seeing her looking at you, Black Christmas. <laughs> always a pleasure to see Mary Elizabeth Winstead. It is. She's good. This is pretty early on, not too long after her final destination, Black Christmas Days. She looks very young, but I think she shows a remarkable amount of talent here. Knowing she was in this, seeing her in the opening credits, seeing her in the opening scene, I was surprised she drops out for 90 minutes of the movie. Yeah, you're not going to compliment her for standing in an elevator. I mean, this is a nothing part. But when she shows up at the end and she has to be a McLean, I buy it. Originally, this was written to be his son, which I think is the film we're going to see next week, is where he reunites with his estranged son. But they changed it into Lucy Gennaro here, or McLean, depending what name she wants to pick at what time in the film. But you know what? Again, I've seen this before. I enjoyed Holly in that first Die Hard film. I enjoy watching Winstead do that Holly Gennaro thing. It's nothing new. I've seen it, but it's enjoyable to retread that. As you said, Stuart, you feel like they're hitting a lot of the key points in Die Hard films. I like to see that spunky... Holly Gennaro character back in this film. Yeah, I would like to see Holly Gennaro back in this film. I feel it's kind of a kick in the nuts for older Die Hard fans that we watched two films where he was fighting for her, and now they can't even get Bonnie Bedelia back. I did see her like a year after this. She had a spot on the TV show Big Love. I think I see why they didn't bring her back. She's not looking her best. But it's just a matter of now they're replacing it with the daughter. I feel like it's a little arbitrary, but it works for me well enough that they 
put someone in danger. And aren't you a little disappointed that after making that phone call after part three, they didn't patch it up? They stayed divorced? It feels weird that they've written Holly off so clearly. And I know that the only reason why they've done it is because, yes, we care about the kids now. This movie is for the 13-year-olds. Mary Elizabeth, yes. Bonnie Bedelia, no. Don't care about her character arc at all. And I don't care about Winstead. I mean, I think she's fine, I guess. But this is another contrivance. In the middle of a three-tier attack, they're going to take the time to go find her in an elevator. And I just, oof. Again, they would have won if they let it go. Well, that's Gabriel's problem. I mean, I guess it kind of does fit his character. He says the whole reason he's attacking the world, whether he's telling the truth or not, maybe he just wants a cash grab, but it's because they laughed at him at one point. And now here, his girlfriend's just been killed by McLean, so it's become personal now, and so he's going after the daughter. Like, I get that it kind of fits it. If this was a better written film, it would make more sense, but I see the seeds there, at least. Don't you like it better when John McLean's fighting a competent villain, though? Yes. Like I said, Artie, if this was a better written film. This is the worst villain that he's fought. I will say that. And to no knock on Timothy Oliphant, it's just not an interesting character. I'll even take the naked jujitsu dude. I think all the other villains were better, had more panache than this guy. I'm bored with these terrorists. And I'm also bored with the fact that not once, but twice... They do the thing of, we have Justin Long in our gun sights. Oh, wait, you can't kill me or you'll never undo this algorithm I just did on this computer I've never seen before. Twice, that's how he lives. Oh, is that any different than Sam Jackson having the opportunity to be shot multiple times by the terrorists? And they go, no, no, just let him go. I didn't like that either. That's what I'm saying. It's been a problem in good diehard films, and it's still a problem here. Yeah, I had more at stake with Sam Jackson is just basically the feeling that I have here. But this is a big action climax. At this point, don't ask any more plot questions. All they want to give you is spectacle. And they had a three-tier plot for doing the heist. This is a three-tier climax, starting at the Woodland facility, then going to the highways and ending in a warehouse. They really want to give you a big bang here as they close out. I realized that I'm in some kind of weird sci-fi comic book movie this whole time. But even that, I feel I am in the Transformers when all of a sudden we have a semi-truck, Optimus Prime, being attacked by a jet, Starscream. <laughs> this is the same summer as Transformers. I had to look it up because I had exactly the same reaction on it. I was like, I have seen this scene before. And it wasn't that one copied the other. I do think that Wiseman is indebted to Bay. I think that he is a fan of his work and emulates the very style that Bay has pioneered here. But this is exactly what the Transformers did running around the LA freeways here with Bruce Willis riding on a jet. I mean, it is just way over the top Transformers at this point. I didn't see Transformers that summer. They're not films I go to often for references. I love this ending scene, this whole freeway. Yes, it's over the top. It's insane. Is it the more grounded Bruce Willis that we have in the first Die Hard film where he's jumping around in elevator shafts? No, but it's so bombastic. If you're going to go big, go big. If you're going to go crazy, this is the way to do it, where he's outrunning missiles in a semi-truck and jumping onto jets that are spinning around, crashing to the ground. He, the freeways are crashing around him. To me, this is exciting. Seeing this, I get it. This is a very different Die Hard, Arnie. I understand that. But I'm enjoying this climax on the freeway. I'm honestly just very upset that our own airmen are firing missiles at our own freeways. And the pilot is stupid. He gets in front of the truck and most of all can planes shoot hover twist and twirl like this does it even follow the laws of physics 
Has anything in this movie followed the laws of physics? If you're still holding on to that by this point, Arnie, yeah. you should have walked out a long time ago. That's exactly right. This movie already told you not to be worried about such a thing. And I'm not. I'm in awe. I think this scene is awesome. I think it's awful. I think it is both at the same time. <laughs> and I'm just kind of in awe at all of its multitude of qualities here. I want to mention that this is all occurring very close to the two-hour mark of a film that is a good smidgen over two hours. And all three times seeing this film, by this point, I'm deadened. Mm-hmm. I am just numb. I'm not in awe. I'm just wanting out. You said, Jacob, I should have gotten up and walked out at this point. All three watchings. Theatrical, theatrical at home, uncut at home. All three times, I wanted to. And that really saddens me because John McClane is my favorite action hero. And here he is riding a jet. Well, maybe it's because I don't have those attachments that I can, yeah, just kind of numbly go along with what's presented here and appreciate what's good about it. I do recognize that some people are going to love this, and they do this aspect of it really, really well. It's a really well-choreographed fight. If you call it a fight or action set piece, whatever you want to call it, I just feel like I'm not invested at all anymore. I love that they even give us the G.I. Joe shot of the pilot parachuting to safety. Yeah, they do do a lot of that. I remember earlier that there were some henchmen that they pretended to shoot over to C.B. Walkman, but in actuality, they just knocked him out. There was a lot of, let's not totally kill them kind of thing. At least when the guy parachutes out of the plane, he doesn't cut off into that weird right angle like in part two. That stuck out to me this time watching it. It's a more competent parachute shot. If you need a compliment, Arnie, you could go with that one. <laughs> and yet for all the callbacks, I never saw Yippie Kaye coming when it did. I actually like the way they did this. It surprised me. What do you want on your tombstone? Always wrong place, wrong time. Nope. You got to have the signature line. I had forgotten we were in a Die Hard movie, I guess, because I didn't think he was going to say it. Well, that's because he doesn't say it. No, in the theatrical version, it says, Yippee mother, fires the gun. Really? Oh, well, that's right. They use the gun sound to drown out motherfucker. Okay. Well, you, you can say fuck once in PG-13, but I guess you can't say motherfucker in PG-13. Take it out with the MPAA. I do like this payout here. I like it. I have to say I would have liked what they were planning on doing before better, because I read that they were going to actually have him ready to shoot and say yippee mother, and then Bruce Willis gets shot and the audience doesn't see it coming. That would have been a wonderful twist. Here, yeah, he says it right before he kills the bad guy every time. You say that like it's a bad thing, Arnie. You've been praising all the things you've liked in the old films, and now when they stick with something from the old films, you sound like you're kind of disappointed. I've said in the Die Hard 2 and 3 reviews that I love the line in the first one because it feels natural. The fact that he says it for no apparent reason when he has no reason to be thinking of Hans Gruber. It's a tagline. Do you hate sitcoms too? By and large. I know. I, I I hate 70s sitcoms where they have taglines. And 80s and 90s. Did I do that? Come on. that That's a sitcom thing. <laughs> yes, I hate Urkel. <laughs> but you like Al. So, I mean, compromise here. They have a formula. They're telling us this is Die Hard. They have to hit certain notes. God knows this thing is very different in action and tone than the other Die Hards. So the fact that they have to do callbacks, yes, they goddamn well have to do callbacks <laughs> here. And I think most of them work and even a few project forward. I think that they did the best they could turning this World War com script into a Die Hard movie. I still question if it was the wise choice to do well we'll find out jacob stewart do you recommend live free or die hard jacob 
One of the things I appreciated about the Die Hard films is that they each kind of take different action films, and they do pretty good jobs of them. You know, that first one, great action film, very strong film, one of the greatest action films out there. Number two, it feels like an exemplar of what a sequel is. It gets a little bit bigger. It's not quite as good. The characters aren't quite as there, but the action's bigger. It's still entertaining. I get to three, and like that feels like a 90s action film to me, mostly because Die Hard inspired so many of the 90s action film, you know, where you kind of have these gimmicks and hostage terrors, but three, it feels like that. And so when I approach Live Free or Die Hard here, Arnie, you said it feels like a lot of the movies, especially from Fox that were coming out at the time. Yeah, this to me feels like this 21st century video game influenced action film. It feels like it is of the time, and that's going to work better with certain audiences over other ones. I think this is the weakest of the Die Hard films. Every computer hacking scene and looking at screens, I hate that. But the action still holds strong here, and that's what gives this, for me, it's a weak, weak recommend. But I like these over-the-top action scenes, except for the Terminatrix getting smashed by the car. It's awful. That's the one point where I can no longer suspend reality. But launching cars into helicopters, the shootouts, the whole freeway scene, it's exciting. It's fun to see how far they could push this character. And so it's a very weak recommend, but I could still recommend this film. Stuart. Well, to paraphrase a earlier exchange about Credence Clearwater Revival, I approached this movie expecting it to feel like a pine cone shoved up my ass. And I'm delighted to say it didn't feel like that at all. I did not like this movie, but I did not hate it, and I was sure that I was going to hate it. If I were more of an action movie junkie, I'd probably give it a pass. But the script is way stupid. There's no way that I can endorse a movie with this much dumb logic and happenstance. It's just insulting to my intelligence, even though I recognize that it delivers a lot about what an action movie should deliver. I'll say this much. Came out the same summer as Transformers. I think it's a little bit better than Transformers. Transformers. They're both sort of left me cold. They're both these giant spectacles with some great visual set pieces. If you like Michael Bay, you should see this movie. Justin Long's at least better than Shia LaBeouf and Willis. You know, we didn't really talk much about him here, but I feel like he's really gotten comfortable in this role. And even though he's not in the same kind of circumstance, I enjoyed seeing him in this one. In a way, I would argue he's better here than he was in the first movie. And so it's on the fence, but I'm going to go mild, not recommend with a caveat that some people are going to like it. This conversation, Jacob, has really helped me to think about this movie in a new way. Because I want to say all three times I've seen this, I went in with a very open mind. It is really perhaps a sign of insanity that I watched this movie a third time after two extraordinarily negative reactions with an open mind and went, maybe this time it won't feel like the pine cone being shoved up my ass. But it did. And from talking to you, I'm thinking about other movies that I know you like. And you like over-the-top, sometimes silly violence, like the crank films and things like that. We've talked about it when we talked about our Ghost Rider retrospective. And I like those films, too. So why can't I get behind it here? And I'm really thinking about it. It's not the hero, because Stuart's right. Bruce Willis is very good here. I still think with the hair goes the charisma that he had of youth. He's now a bit of a curmudgeon. He's a bit cranky. But he's fine in this role. He's fine in this movie. I still don't think he'll ever do better as far as likability than the original. But this is good. So why can't I get behind this? And it is because 
the movie is made for, like Stuart said, 13-year-olds or people of that level. The fact that they don't even care enough to pretend that the stock market should be closed on the 4th of July. No, it's wide open. We're doing trading and we're going to hack it. The screenwriters, if there really were any, or if they weren't just making it up, shouting lines from the side as they were shooting, just don't care enough to give me a compelling villain that I want to see the hero triumph over, to give me a plot where the twists and turns enthrall me. I need that to enjoy crazy spectacle like a guy riding the airplane. You give that to me in Crank, I'd probably be like, fuck yeah! Give it to me in this movie, I'm like, really? Well, because it's PG-13 and you couldn't yell fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Even the unrated version. (laughs) So it's just that I am insulted by this script. Yeah, I'm yeah right there with you on that, Arnie. It is really not just bad as a diehard film, because if this was Crank 3 or Transformers or Wolverine, I would still be upset at the sheer lack of intelligence displayed in the script, and the lack of any kind of hook. I can't imagine that if this wasn't a diehard film, people would watch it and like it. But then again, as I said earlier in this podcast, I also don't understand people who like Underworld. So this is a really strong not recommend from me. I am a completist that knows no bounds. I bought the detective so I could have the full diehard set. No, Fox, you are not getting my money for the unrated version of this until you come out with the five movie set. Which they will. (laughs) And then they'll still get it. Yeah, it's coming. (laughs) And I wish I could have had fun with this. I wish I liked this movie. I am so glad, though, that they're making a fifth one. Unlike Crystal Skull, where I'm like, Spielberg, Lucas, please, just, just fucking stop. Here, I don't feel it's unsalvageable because, again, they're taking away the creative team that made this one. Wiseman is nowhere to be found, and we are going to get a chance for redemption for Willis and this franchise. And... I honestly don't care that A Good Day to Die Hard is rated R, but it gives me a little hope that the people with the purse strings care more about letting John Moore, the new director, make his vision than trying to keep the ratings low so that 12-year-olds can buy tickets. Yeah, I'll second that. I really was super dreading having to go to the movie theater and see this new movie. I thought, oh, 4 is going to be awful and that's going to be even worse. I don't know. If it even matched the quality of this, I think I'll be okay. Honestly, the one I remember loving the best is the one I like least now. Die Hard 2, for me, is the one that's not working. That's all they got to do. They got to do better than Die Hard 2. And so I'm skeptically optimistic, maybe, that I'll get that next week. And I always feel, I guess as a big Die Hard fan, Man, it's just a party for me now, going back to four. It felt like just a party, 4th of July weekend barbecue. And I guess this is going to be a Valentine's Day party I'm going to for this next film. But it's a love story. <laughs> yes, I, that keeps going off in my head. Will they get Holly in it? No. But to go back and see a Die Hard film, I'm always going to go in optimistic. Even after the one we just reviewed, which I recognize is the weakest one, I'm still excited to go in. I guess it would have to be a real stinker for me not to be excited to go see a Die Hard film. 
Well, we'll find out next week as our Die Hard retrospective reaches its explosive conclusion. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. A reminder to our listeners, you can head to our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, where you can listen to all five of our currently released Die Hard reviews. Five, you ask? Yes! We also reviewed The Detective, starring Frank Sinatra. Why, you ask? Head to nowplayingpodcast.com and listen to find out, because that is truly the first John McClane movie. You can also find our retrospective reviews of Terminator, Predator, Star Trek, The Avengers, Ghost Rider. You can find other Valentine's Day films like the two Ghost Rider films, Daredevil, Elektra, so much more, all in our archives at nowplayingpodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this show, please head to iTunes and leave us a five-star written review. It really helps get the word out to others to listen to the show. And a reminder to Now Playing Completists, we do have just a small number of DVD-ROM 5th anniversary sets available that have all of our previous donation-only series available. That includes Alien, Poltergeist, Jaws, The Thing from Another World, so much more. Find out all the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. So we'll be back next week when it's a good day to die hard. So thanks for coming to the party, pal! What you get for being a hero? Nothing. Get shot at. Get a little pat on the back. Blah blah blah. Atta boy. Get divorced. A wife can't remember your last name. Kids don't want to talk to you. You eat a lot of meals by yourself. Trust me, kid. Nobody wants to be that guy. Then why are you doing this? Because there's nobody else to do it right now. That's why. Believe me, if there was somebody else to do it, I would let them do it, but there's not. So we're doing it. That's what makes you that guy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Congratulations, you're still alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can hear more reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Get ready for the downloads. You can hear reviews of Terminator, Predator, The Avengers, Batman, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Launch the downloads. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Baby, come on, baby, come to Papa, I kiss your fucking Dalmatian. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. This gentleman, as they say, is where the plot thickens. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Go to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You like it, huh? How about you give me 20 bucks for it? But I let you live. Man knows how to bark. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Money. Of terrorist <laughs> Who said we were terrorists? You can also show your love of now playing podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. They're for my wife. Yeah. Bag it. Big time. 
Now Playing's Die Hard Retrospective Series is edited by Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. I'll be damned if I'm going to clean up this mess! <laughs> now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. You're very impressed with yourself, aren't you? I have my moans. Now Playing is not affiliated with 20th Century Fox. The Detective and Die Hard films are the property of 20th Century Fox and no infringement is intended. Listen, uh, you're not pissing in somebody's pool, are you? <laughs> yeah, and I'm fresh out of chlorine. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. That was unpleasant. Don't let it happen again. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production copyright 2013 all rights reserved and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Non-compliance will result in a penalty. Happy trails, Hans. And I, I think this is so when you say his daughter wanted this director, I don't doubt that. Well, that's a good rumor to hear. Is that a pun? It is because Bruce yeah. Willis's daughter's yeah, yeah. name is Rumor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You should have gone with Rumor has it. But eh, <laughs> now we're debating the quality of our puns. <laughs> yeah. Which one's worse? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. When John Mc... Now I'm about to say McCain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you betcha. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. <laughs>